The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicfliersnz.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. I'd like to welcome John Kelly, JK, who is the uh, Vice President of Warbirds and uh, Keith mentioned earlier about... Uh, how he was involved in getting civilian pilots into the um, Roaring Forties and JK is one of those civilian pilots who flies regularly in the Roaring Forties as number four. Uh, yeah, um, John's uh, also very involved in the museum here and um, and uh, yeah, he's got a, got a few topics he's going to talk about but um, Harvard, uh, civilian Harvard training 115 rides and uh, a bit about the museum? Yeah, about the displays, yeah. So I'd like to welcome John Kelly. Uh, afternoon, everyone. Um, yeah, as Dave said, um, just probably a, a few words about uh, my experiences, and I don't know if they're the uh, best of experiences, but it's my experience anyway. So um, just I grew up, I didn't grow up through the Air Force, I grew up in private um, with aero clubs and that, so um, learned to fly over here at where Waitemata Air Club used to be, which is now the Warbirds headquarters. So I can officially say we're going to that bar for 40 years. Um, and um, back in those days, the Aero Club uh, was heavily into uh, club competitions. And um, I just got my PPL, and um, one Richard Hood, who I think is a member of the forum, made a comment that um, I'm doing the aerobatic competitions. 
and, I, and the end of the year and um, uh, I'd never done aerobatics so he said oh the other thing you're doing is an aerobatic rating so um, that was my introduction to competitions and from there um, we bought shares and a couple of aeroplanes uh, single seat pit special and um, I have to say that was a um, training of my life it was uh, um, we did a bit of cub flying and um, I sat in the back seat for and tried to fly it from the back and then Richard got out because I think he had no more ideas so um, um, off I went in the, two, in the single seat pits and um, um, scared myself and um, uh, trying to figure out how I was going to land it but managed to and, and that and did quite a few hours and that from there we um, bought the two seater pits so the training for, for people and tail draggers and particularly pits has got a lot, a lot simpler in that regard but the two seat pits is also a bit of a handful um, but in terms of the Harvard um, training, that, as Keith probably mentioned about the um, training for civilian guys, my experience, I'm a uh, flying instructor and um, back in 95 or 96 I think it was, um, Peter Beaumont said to me um, you should buy a share in a Harvard and I, I should, co should comment that every um, aeroplane I bought a share in, and that's probably been about eight or nine of them over the years, has always been negotiated and purchased over that bar over there so um, if you don't want to buy a share in an aeroplane stay out of the bar but the um, um, yeah so Pilo suggested I should look at buying a share in Harvard and one year we ended up up at uh, Kirikiri and um, um, I was in the pits and Pilo said well somebody else is going to fly the pits back because you can take um, 78 back and he'll sit in the back as the instructor so that was uh, my first experience flying a Harvard uh, at all and um, we flew it back into here and um, uh, from there we organised a, uh, a syndicate for Harvard 5.3 so um, as probably seen the background of 53 and, and also 52 um, we bought 53 off um, uh, Spritsky, on Spritsky up in uh, North Shore and it was a whole bunch of bits uh, luckily uh, things like the wings were pretty complete uh, the fuselage would probably say about 75% uh, the engine needed some work. Um, I think we ended up with, who'd have thought, but there's, we ended up with two left-hand propeller blades, so we had to find a right-hand one. Um, and um, uh, from there we rebuilt the aeroplane. That aeroplane uh, was a syndicate we had. We started off with a group of 10, and um, you paid your money up front, and that money went towards the rebuild. And um, uh, as we needed more money, we ended up with more people in the syndicate, and we ended up with 15 people in the syndicate by the time the aeroplane got airborne and finally ended up with, um, I'll just wait for these guys to go. And, um, and finally ended up with about 19 in the syndicate. So, um, um, and um, of the guys in that syndicate, I'd say probably eight of us are actually flying members of the syndicate and the rest were guys who um, uh, just were interested in being involved in it. and that's still the same with Harvards today you, you don't actually have to be a pilot to to enjoy the aeroplane but um, uh, we've had a few people sell their shares over the years and when I've told them what the share is worth um, they've they've said I thought Pebo said that was it was going to be an investment and I said it is it's a small investment you used to have a big one so um, uh, yeah so the aeroplane prices the shares tend to go up and down with how uh, how many hours are left on the engine or um, or the airframe and that, and how desperate people are to sell, so that's the way it is. But um, training in them, we finally got 53 airborne in 99, uh, and um, uh, people did my type rating, and, and um, uh, then when I 
with Warbirds, I started to do some type ratings in, in, um, uh, in 53, but also some of the other, other Harvards. I've got a share in 78 as well. And um, So I think I've flown most of the Harvards across it. And the interesting thing being a civilian pilot, I don't know what it was like in the Air Force. Um, uh, Gavin might be able to comment about that, but all the Harvards are slightly different. Um, they were put together and taken, taken apart at different times, and, and so they've got different equipment in them. It's quite hard to find the the plugs to put your headset into, that's the first test. And um, particularly in the back, um, some have got live, intercoms live and some aren't, so um, you've got to figure that out as, you, as the student in front's taxing out and asking you questions. Um, but uh, yeah, for me with training in it, uh, I guess back then when we started in the Harvards, for me we didn't really have a, a training program as such, it was um, just get going in the aeroplane and um, get a few hours under your belt. Um, we liked to train people on the on the grass. What I would do is I'd, I'd get them going on circuits, touch and goes on the seal, and just getting them familiar with landing on a on a, a spot. So having an aiming point and having a place to land, so that when they get on the grass, um, they will uh, be able to get it down at the right at the very edge on the on the marker boards. One of the things for Harvards here in at Ardmore is um, that their uh, the grass is actually quite short for a Harvard. Um, particularly in nil wind conditions, so it's uh, um, a bit of a challenge and, and um, thankfully we haven't had any noseovers but you do need to be applying the brakes as a, as a tail is still up which is a bit of, bit of a no-no with tail draggers but um, that's the way it is. But I've found um, 53 for example has a lockable uh, tail wheel and that's a bit of a challenge for people because it, it, it restricts the amount of movement the, um, uh, the st for the steering of, of the aeroplane on the ground and in theory it, it, it would stop a ground loop but I wouldn't, I'm not going to test that theory but um, it, um, it's the hardest thing to taxi because you've got to actually unlock the tail wheel a bit like the Mustang, the Mustang has the same system and that, uh, that system uh, was a later development I don't think any of our Harvards uh, that were in the Air Force had that, but um, it was applied to 53 um, back in uh, about 2003 after its ground loop back then. So, um, uh, Syndicate, that would be a good idea. But um, uh, with training civilian students, I guess for me it's about knowing their background um, and what experience they have. They obviously have, um, they don't get, didn't have the benefit of um, the military training where somebody else is paying the bill. So for uh, a lot of the Aero Club guys, um, it's finding what experience they've got and where their gaps are in their training. So, um, and everybody has them. It's, um, I guess, a bit different to the Air Force that um, when they're civilian trained, people will take as long as they want to. They're, they're paying the bill, so they'll fly them as often as they want to. And um, so there might be long gaps in their training. And certainly, um, uh, I guess the big thing, people coming from an Aero Club or a flying school, is that when they start flying a Harvard, they actually own it. And that's one of the hard things to get across to people, is you actually have a share in this aeroplane. You have to look after it. And one of the rules we tend to have is that if you, um, if you fly the aeroplane, leave it as if you, you'd like to find it. And that's actually quite a hard thing to teach, because um, you walk away. In fact, I've just walked away from 53, realising I haven't given it a clean down, so that's my next job after here. But um, yeah, you need to wipe it down and... and um, uh, it's not just about flying the aeroplane, it's putting it away in the hangar and getting it out. Um, rules like you don't tow it out by yourself or put it away by yourself, you've got to have someone else with you. So uh, with Warbirds, it's very much like a club in that regard where everybody's got to help each other out. So um, yeah, quite a, 
uh, thing to um, for people to go through sometimes. So um, I think that's probably all I should have mentioned before. That's about all I've got to say about training on Harvard. If you've got any questions, just ask away. Put your hand up or something, and I'll I'll need a breather anyway. So it'll be good. Um, just moving on to the 115 flights, so a bit of background with those. That um, Years ago, in the um, sort of 70s, 80s, uh, and into the 90s, we were, um, you could go to an air show and the pilot would be standing at the fence and you'd go up and ask for a ride and the pilot would say, yeah, jump on board, it's going to cost you that much. And um, then that was fine for years and then um, they became cost-share rides. And then um, obviously there was a, the issue with... Um, uh, PPLs and, um, and that taking people for a, for a flight and, and those people paying and obviously being expecting they be flying with a commercial pilot so the whole um, part 115 aviation thing came along and so that that put a stop to um, being able to lean over the fence and ask for someone for a ride and certainly at Warbirds we don't really advocate um, cost share rides either because it's for the person who's um, standing at the fence, they're expecting some level of service for that, for uh, what they're paying. So I'll just let this guy taxi in as well. So with, um, uh, and unfortunately the 115, part 115 um, system took a long time to come in. There was lots of backwards and forwards with the CAA with uh, manuals and all that sort of thing to get it right. And it's still not 100% right, but it's certainly um, uh, a lot better than what it was. And it's very, it's very workable, although expensive for an organisation. So um, yeah, there's a lot of auditing and all that sort of thing going on. But one of the things that, that's come out of the 115 rides is the what they call the SMS system, the safety management system. And that's um, a bit of a change, I guess you'd call it health and safety in aviation, but it's a bit of a change to uh, the big change with it for, for uh, aviators is it it's, talks about a thing called a just culture. And that's being able to, if you if you make a mistake, if something's wrong, you speak up and you say something about it, um, which is a great system, really. I mean, you, 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 for, you know, we probably lived in, in fear of being prosecuted or um, at least being told off or having to shout the bar or something. But um, um, uh, now with the system, you can at least put your hand up and say, I saw this happening, it was my fault, or we shouldn't be doing that. So it is a good system. And um, I think a lot of organisations have had to um, uh, make a whole lot of changes. But um, here at Warbirds, um, we certainly... Um, probably the most obvious thing you'll see is everybody now is wearing a fluoro jacket. My two good friends down the back there. And um, um, But behind all that is um, everything that goes on, taking people for rides, um, you know, having enough people on the ground to look after them. Uh, and that, so just getting on to the rides, um, with the Harvards I've probably done about 200, 200 odd rides in, in Harvards and um, the rides are 25-30 minutes long but you, we would spend about three hours uh, by the time we got out here, got the aeroplane out, uh, looked after the customer and, and um, took them flying. Uh, put the aeroplane away and put the customer away again. It's about three hours round trip. So, and we don't like to um, sort of put them back to back because we want the customer to have a very 
a good experience with the airplane. Most of the passengers we seem to be getting on the Harvard are um, Kiwis, and so there's a lot of uh, people. It's interesting. Someone will come out and you'll say to them, well, you know, what's your what's your experience or knowledge of a Harvard? And they'll, they'll talk about their a family member or someone they knew, or they themselves worked on them or flew them or something like that. So that's really actually really cool. And um, one of the one of the good things about it also is that most of our Harvards are all all painted up in the various colour schemes they operated in during during their service, so we can talk a lot about that. Some passengers will um, want to know technical things about the aeroplane um, that I don't know that the answer to, so I'll refer to my my, my ground crew, and um, and that. Um, so some will want to know about the aeroplane and just some some facts. So it's always good when you're doing the rides to have, uh, have some facts in your back pocket for um, for that. Um, so yeah, they. Um, and with the rides we offer uh, there's a, a scenic, you can do formation scenic, you can do um, aerobatics um, and um, so most of the customers I think um, haven't, it's quite, quite interesting that um, the customer will come out with um, family members, be, a family member might have paid for the flight or a group of them might have paid for it or um, they'll come out with half a dozen family members and it actually it's harder to look after the people on the ground that, that don't go up on the flight. And the other interesting thing is, it's, if you if you say to the passenger, "Do you want to do um, aerobatics?" They're usually quite apprehensive, but everybody who's staying on the ground is quite keen for them to do the aerobatics. So, so um, um, we usually make sure we brief them on doing the aerobatics. Either way, and, and when we get in the air, we say, "Now, do you want to do these aerobatics or not?" So, and sometimes you have to lie because the first thing the pass people on the ground ask when you get back is, "Did you do a loop?" So um, we'll often say yes. So, um, but um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, there's a few challenges with aerobatics. A, um, um, with the rules in place, we've got to have fi a 5,000 foot cloud base because um, we've got to recover by 3,000 feet during the aerobatics, and we need a thousand feet um, separation between us and the cloud. So, cloud base has to be quite high. And we're also restricted with airspace as well. So, we've got to head south of the Bombay's to do that. So there's a few challenges with it and um, I certainly take my hat off to the guys who are working on the ground uh, for us because um, um, they have to deal with all the, uh, uh, the, the, the people who come along and, and take them for a walk around here and also any sick bags that might turn up. So that's their job. Um, yeah, so yeah, if there's no questions about uh, one five rides, we'll move on to... Uh, Warbirds and Gav, you've got about 10 minutes spare. Um, so with uh, with Warbirds, I'm also um, I've been I've been called many things, but I'm also I got called the historian one day, and someone called me a curator the other day, and I, I'm I'm not sure about either either name tag, and um, I think you've got to have experience or got to have some uh, uh, training or education to become a curator. But but there it is. But um, uh, back in the um, no, it would have been the early 90s, I think, and Gavin was uh, was president. We uh, we talked about running some open days and, and also doing some displays up on the wall. So this is when we were in Hangar 4 over here. And um, so we, we and it was sort of a very, very blank canvas, I've got to say, for what we wanted to display. But but early on, I kind of thought it's it's more about the people that flew the warbirds or, or military aircraft than, than the aircraft themselves because particularly in the hangar the aircraft come and go but um, usually the history of the people is something that, that people walk away and remember so so initially we uh, set it up so we had all the New Zealand squadrons covered in um, 
the Article 15 thing for the um, for, for Europe. Um, so we covered off those squadrons and then um, moved into the Pacific um, side of things. So um, uh, I have to say the um, this all started when we moved everything. We bought Hangar 2, moved everything from Hangar 4 to Hangar 2, and and didn't have to start again. But luckily, all the signboards that um, the sign writers made up were removable so we managed to get over there pretty easily but um, I kind of thought this job would be finished uh, before now and I'd, I'd be able to just sit back and, and watch but um, we keep coming up with new aeroplanes, new hangars and um, and some other ideas so over in hangar 2 um, we've got um, I would like to do a, uh, a fleet air arm uh, uh, display and um, also something on the Battle of Britain the Battle of Britain's kind of uh, it's easy and it's difficult because I don't want it to look like all the other Battle of Britain displays around. I want to commemorate um, the Kiwis that flew in it. Um, so that's kind of the where it sits at the moment. And I'm, I certainly don't want to... Uh, we we can't compete against Omarker, so um, we have to come up with something smart. Fleet Air Arm is fairly easy um, because the Fleet Air Arm in some corps was around right from the beginning of uh, World War One, really, in the um, Royal Naval Air Squadron and right through... Um, to even today, and we've, I think even today we've still got Kiwis flying in the fleet air arms, so it's kind of easy to do, but big, quite a big display. Um, the biggest challenge for us over there really was the, um, the P-40 corner. Um, luckily there's a lot of, lot of history and a lot of books on, on um, P-40s, but also on that particular P-40, so that gave us a lot of uh, starting, and, and, that, and um, Colin over here and I built the... Uh, the displays that, that's in that corner and um, was kind of start from nothing and it was we thought that was kind of apt because when the guys got to Papua New Guinea they had to start with nothing as well so, um, so that's that's where we've got to now um, and I guess probably leading into finally some of the other things we're um, we're looking to do um, what we've got in this hangar here is um, probably uh, for a little while what I'm uh, I haven't really talked to the president about this yet, but um, um, I'd like to build a bit of a walkway around the side there and, and make it into a bit more of a World War I um, theme. Um, and also over in um, Hangar 2, I'm um, uh, keen to do something. We've got a Harvard corner, which is the final bay upstairs in the mezzanine floor, and um, I'm waiting for a Harvard fuselage to, to turn up in the, in the corner over there one day. And, um, and we'll do a bit more on that. So the Harvard corner... Is going to be about, um, uh, yeah, obviously the history of the Harvard, but also some of the technical stuff on the Harvard and, and um, some of the people that um, personalities that flew them as well. So, um, so um, if anybody, and this is my uh, my shout out to anybody here at the forum who's got any ideas, um, and I've seen some pop up, but I'm looking for any information we've got on the Harvards. There's some information about different Harvards that are still surviving in that. And that's the sort of thing that I want to put in there as um, a bit of, bit of background to the aeroplanes. And so when people come to the um, Hangar 2, they can find out some technical stuff but, or they can see some family in there or they can say they flew that aeroplane or worked on that aeroplane. That's kind of what, where I want to go with that. Um, and then the other thing I'm looking for some help with is, um, um, and I've been struggling with it for over a year now, but I want to do something on the defence of Auckland. So um, if anybody, again, has got any ideas, I'm after um, you know, aerial photograph of Auckland, 1943-ish, and um, yeah, where all the bases were. I know there's some plenty of stuff on the forum there, and I'm just trying to get everything together. But that's going to be quite a 
I think it'll be a it'll be a big project, um, and where we put it will be uh, will be interesting. But yeah, I think we need to do something on the defence of Auckland as well. So because um, there's some interesting stories on there. Someone commented about um, the Americans are out here. Um, people know the history of Armour, um, but it's. Um, um, got built in, in defence of Auckland when they thought the Japanese were going to make it down here. So um, all the half-round hangars you see, I think there's still about six of them around Ardmore, um, they're all the original hangars. And back in 1942, I think it was, the Americans came out um, and they spoke to the Public Works Department. Um, so Ardmore uh, was just farmer's paddock and quite wet. And um, the Americans decided they were going to build an airfield here and the public works guy said we need, um, we need a, f a soil report because it's quite wet and, it, and the Americans said just build it, the Japs will be here before, by then. So, so um, But the airfield um, was primarily built using what's Stevenson's Quarry down the motorway there, you'll, um, if you're heading south on the left, up in the hill there's a place called Stevenson's Quarry. And all the fill for the runway came from there and, and um, we must have done quite well out of it because they're still operating today. So, um, But the airport company um, it's, it is quite wet uh, out here and, and they're forever trying to fix up the runway and, and glue it back together so it's an ongoing problem for them. But uh, um, yeah, but I mean the great thing about Ardmore is apart from uh, us having to be able to have woolbirds out here, the, the airfield is a historic airfield so it's kind of great to, um, great to have really and uh, um, I had family who flew out here and, and they caused some damage on the taxiways and that so it's quite, quite good to be around that. But, uh, Yes, that's, uh, any questions at all? No, cool. What did you? Yep. Is that right? Two years. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Ah, right. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks very much, John. Very busy man. Uh, into all sorts there. Um, well, uh, I guess without any further ado, we'll get into the, the next... Um, actually, just before we do, uh, Peter Lane has a very short story he'd like to, to tell us about at Harvard. Yes, back in, 20, back in 2003, I wrote this book called Taking Off, Pioneering Small Airlines with New Zealand. I wrote this book with Richard Waugh, and that was about airlines. There's a little story in here about a Harvard, which I suddenly remembered the other day for a very special reason. So I'll read it to you. It won't be long. It's called Rescue on the Open Sea. Actually, I better put my glasses on, then I can actually see what I'm reading. Flying officer Graham Millwood had no idea what was in store during his flight from Hakea to Whanuapai on the 10th of November 1962. The Whanuapai station at Adjutorn had been at Hakea for exercises and on conclusion he took off in Harvard 1094 to return. This is the same Harvard that, he, that had escorted Virgin BGQ carrying George Bolt to Dargaville on the 16th of December 1959. All appeared normal until 5.17 when the cockpit filled with smoke. Millwood issued a mayday call and bailed out at 3,500 feet. The 
but at that stage it was, uh, we did not have daylight saving. The Kota NZ3551 was airborne between Hamilton and Wellington carrying the Chief of Air Staff, Air Vice Marshal I.G. Morrison, so it's APM, take a note of that, APM, I.G. Morrison, accompanied by the former commanding officer of RNZF Station Tuvapa, Wing Commander Kevin Fennessy and his wife. The crew heard the call and immediately diverted. Twenty minutes later, Mrs. Fennessy spotted the airman's orange dinghy off Taharoa Point near Kafia. Bristol Freighter and Devon Aircraft also joined in surveillance and in the failing, in, sorry, in the failing light. At one stage, the dinghy was not seen for ten minutes until Millwood, Millwood released a flare. The search and rescue coordinator at Penuapai, Flight Lieutenant Ray Hartstinge, realised it was too late to organise a Sunderland flying boat and promptly phoned Bruce Packer at Tourist Air Travel in Auckland. Dick Grimes was en route from Taupo to Auckland with some French tourists, so he diverted up the coast of all on board, keeping a lookout. On landing Mechanics Bay, Grimes and Packer teamed up in Grimes' favourite widget ZK AVM, so we've got two AVMs now, and was soon airborne with a full fuel load. The military AVM, Morrison, maintained its airborne watch. The civil APM, which arrived on the scene, and carry on. The civil APM, which arrived on the scene, and with the aid of a smoke canister, soon located Millwood's dinghy, popping in the heavy swell. Packer landed on the open sea at 7:35 p.m. Thanks to the heavy swell, Millwood was bounced towards the aircraft where he initially grabbed the port float. Grimes was prepared to risk his life by swimming out to the dinghy. Luck smiled again as Millwood was swept by the wave to the fuselage where he was hauled aboard two hours after bailing out. Grimes then unceremoniously sank the dinghy and gave the extremely cold adjutant his warm clothing before strapping into a passenger seat. Eleven minutes after landing APM, took off pitch darkness for Fenuapai with the crew having no idea as to the wind direction. The Wichon was not equipped for night flying and the crew used uh, Millwood's survival torch to read the instruments. Packer had never done a night landing on, uh, on land in a Wichon. In addition, the Wichon was wearing beaching tyres and not land tyres. These tyres were suitable only for water landings, taxiing on sand and manoeuvring on the TAT tarmac. They were not designed to take the full impact of an abrupt contact with the sealed runway. Given these factors, Grimes took over the controls just prior to the Wichon landing at 8.50pm. It appears that the different tyres referred to are only used by TAT, as according to Harold Bennett of Amphibian Airways, they used their tyres in all conditions. There's a special message sent from the military ABM awaiting the triumphant crew. It stated, I've just watched a skillful pickup of one of my pilots from the open sea. Bless you and thank you. Millwood, on his return, said, I felt like a box of birds. He had been prepared to spend the night at sea, even though he was bitterly cold. There are countless rescues by TAT, but this one surely stands out from all the others performed, not only by TAT, but also by any of the amphibian and float plane operators. The courageous effort was not forgotten, and Packer later received the Queen's commendation for available services in the air. Now, that, that little story means um, something personal to me, because on that very same day, 
And just a few minutes before that happened, I just happened to be flying from Palmerston North to Auckland, Viscount, you know, see Viscount ZKBRE. So, you know, soon after we landed, we found out about what was going on off the coast of Taranaki. So I thought you might be interested in the story. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Um, well, our next speaker is Gavin Trithui, uh very well known in warbirds and in the Air Force circles back in the day as a Canberra pilot and various other things. <laughs> and I think you, you might be, would you be the highest hour Harvard pilot in New Zealand, I think? Which? Highest hour um, Harvard pilot? I would doubt it. Really? Okay. <laughs> you're, you're probably the longest flying one, though, when you, you've been flying a long, long time and still flying. Okay, that would be true. Yeah. Well, uh, please welcome Gavin. Good night, yeah. Good night. Oh, yeah. I'll just get the uh, computer set up. Just out of interest, before we start, I flew in the Harvard formation this morning with... Uh, Another gent about similar age, I don't know who was uh, bending the rules, but it was noted that we had uh, between us 162 years of life on this earth. <laughs> We're nearly there. So Thanks for your patience. Just check if this will this advance. No, it's not going to advance itself. Uh, I'll just stay here and you tell me when to go to the next one. Okay. All right. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Can you all hear me okay? Good. I'm half deaf, so I don't hear what's going on too much. So, uh, this is to celebrate the 80th birthday of the Harvard, and I haven't flown them for 80 years, but I've flown them for 62 years. I don't know that that needed a clap. And uh, Dave asked, uh, asked me, was I the most experienced Harvard pilot in the country? But I don't think that would be true. But I'm probably the longest, the longest lived at this stage. Um, so I'll just tell you a, a little bit about some of my experiences in the Harvard without telling you too much about the airplane. And then I want to tell you in the end about the project that we're moving on to the thing that's involving me the most in New Zealand warbirds. You know, noisy airplanes shouldn't be allowed on airports, should they, really? They spoil talk. Um, when I joined the Air Force in 1959, uh, I had a private pilot's license, which had all been done on tiger moths. And when I got my first flight on the Harvard, with an instructor, of course, and the, the throttle was opened. My initial impression on takeoff was that a mad bull elephant had got loose because compared with the tiger moth, it was a real, a real roaring beast. Um, so that was my initial impression. And out of interest, the first flight I did in the Harvard was in uh, NZ1023. I don't know where that's got to now, but very shortly afterwards, I did a flight in NZ1057, which you would have seen this morning, parked out here somewhere. So uh, that's a Warbird airplane, and um, I got cl fairly closely associated with that airplane uh, along the way. In fact, can you give us the next slide? 
That's just my wing scores, fellas. There you go. I got a picture of 1057 thing, so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, in that aeroplane, in fact, um, I flew our wings course aerobatic competition, and the aeroplane was so good it allowed me to win. And then a few days later, I flew it again, and at our graduation wings course fly past. So I've got fond memories of that aeroplane. I then, uh, having done my wings, disappeared into the jet world for about five years in the Air Force. And when I came back, uh, it was to go to Central Flying School to become a Harvard instructor. Can you give us another one? Oh, those were the guys who were learning to be instructors with me. Uh, out of interest, my very first flight, which was a rear seat for Mill, because as an instructor you had to learn how to fly the aeroplane from the rear seat with some student in the front who probably was trying hard to kill you. Uh, and I did that first flight in NZ-1092. So give us another picture, Dave. Oh, I'll leave it on that. NZ-1092 is... That one. And that aeroplane is still here, and it's the aeroplane I, the Harvard I fly the most. It um, belongs to a chap called Colin Rogers. Uh, and shortly after that, I did a, um, an instructor training flight in NZ-1098, which is the aeroplane that Ace and I flew this morning in the fly past. Now, I, I just want to tell you a bit about my memories of flying the Harvard. There are, there are good memories, bad memories, memories of challenges. So just to, to say a few of them. One of the things I remember about Christchurch things I remember about Christchurch is that the temperature, the climate in Christchurch changes from like this, whereas Auckland sort of toddles along in the middle. So at this stage, as a, a budding new instructor, I was living in Rickerton, and to get to Wigram Airport each morning, you had to move south. And of course, I had to go on the bike because I had no money. So there was always a southerly wind in the morning on the way. So you had a headwind and froze to death and when by the time you came home at night the wind had gone northwesterly so you're pushing into this hot northwester. My memories of Christchurch. And I remember one of the things I really hated was teaching new students how to start the Harvard. They'd done all the bookwork and you got them in the cockpit and you had to run them through a start the first time. And of course all the starting controls were in the front, but the instructor was in the back. So you had to stand on the wing and lean over the side of the, of the cockpit and detail what you wanted them to do. And of course when they got it started, the wind would come back off the prop and you'd be hanging on the side there and they were always cold southerlies. So you froze to death standing on the wing, trying to teach these young fellas how to start an aeroplane. So that's an unpleasant memory. Uh, the opposite, of course, was hot, raw 
investors when it got rough as guts around Wigram when you were trying to fly the Harvards. And you can bet your boots that those would be the days that you had to teach three students in a row spinning. So you'd clamber on up through all this rough weather to 9,000 feet, get the aeroplane into a spin, talk it down, do it three or four times, then your hour was finished, you go back, turn around and get the next student. And I remember one particular occasion when it was not a very pleasant day. By the time I got two-thirds of the way through teaching my second student, I knew that if we did another spin, I was going to disgrace myself. <laughs> so uh, the only option was to um, throw the uh, idle cut off and stop his engine so that he was committed to do a forced landing practice. So that was always a good test for a student. So then he went on down and flew, the, flew a forced landing practice. Uh, and then I said, uh, take me back to Wigram. And I, then I cancelled the third sortie. As a student, though, the things I probably hated most were under the hood, instrument flying. You got on the front seat of the Harvard with the instructor behind, you pulled the instrument hood over your head so you couldn't see anything outside, and away you went. And we did our uh, instrument rating tests on the radio range, which was listening to dit-dars and dardits to know where you were and to find your way back down to the ground. Um, we did a thing called loss procedure, where you had to lock yourself under the hood, having caged your uh, direction indicator, and the instructor would fly you somewhere for about uh, 20 minutes, and then he'd say, open the hood, and you'd come out from underneath, and he'd say, figure out where you are and take me back to Wigram. So you had to figure out where you were, estimate a course and time, and then you close the hood over again, and you flew back on instruments. And uh, I remember the first time I did that when he said, all right, come out now. There was no sign of Wigram in any direction. So we did that one again. Um, and spinning, spin recovery under the hood was never much fun. Uh, coming on down, rotating, while it was pointed out to you how the airplane was yawing, look for this on your... Uh, on your turn and bank indicator, look at the airspeed, all this sort of stuff, the airplane's going round and round, and you can't see out, and you've just got this awful uncomfortable feeling sitting inside. So I consider that unpleasant, but it's something we all had to put up with. Good things though, um, aerobatics in the clear, formation aerobatics I loved. That group of guys there, um, it includes me, and that was the uh, Central Flying School Harvard Aerobatic Team in 1965. We flew shows around the country from time to time. Number one. And there we go. Pulling up into a loop, and uh, we've all signed these things, so that one's me. That was all good fun, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the odd sort of thing I was shown, like I always, we were told you're not allowed to do aerobatics at night, but everyone had a go at it. And you get the right sort of night, and you go out over Lake Ellesmere, and uh, pull the airplane up and do a stall turn. And when you got to the top of the stall turn and the engine started to snuff out, 
the, the lighting around you was tremendous. The flames and uh, the, the light, wonderful sight. Something you never forget. Barry would remember. It was challenging. Um, if they say if you've learnt to fly a Harvard from the back seat and you're competent from the back seat, then you're ready to fly any of the World War II fighters because you're going to have a similar sort of view out the front. And this is particularly so at night. And night operations, teaching students, were always interesting because the grass at Wigram had a big, just a flare path, flares lit on either side. And when you were, uh, if you were taking off in that direction, you'd, you'd line up here and you could see all the flares, that's fine. It came your turn to go, you turn onto the runway, and from the back seat, all you could see was one flare on this side, one flare on that side. And you had to get used to that. Uh, and hope that the student could keep the directional control good for the initial part of the takeoff. I had one particular experience which will always stick in my mind teaching a student at night. I'll even, no, I won't give you his name, but I know who he was. A perfectly fine fella. Uh, we used to do um, two. Uh, consecutive details of night flying and the airplane would come back from the first one and uh, we'd do a changeover of instructor and pupil and leave the engine running while we did it and then out you'd go do the second one. So on this particular night the airplane came in, it was dark I said to the student, often so the students changed while the instructor well, in fact it wasn't an instructor, it's one of being a solo student. The students changed over and uh, got themselves settled and then it got my turn and I got in the back of the aeroplane and I said to young Wally, okay, taxi me out. So we went out and uh, we're doing circuits. He'd done, a, he'd done a couple of night details. He was getting okay. So we went round and round the circuit, did half a dozen touch and goes. He was doing so well that I thought, it's time I sent him solo. So I said, Okay, well, before I send you solo, I better do, do one for myself, just for practice. I have control. So this was just above the ground as we, as we went around. I have control, I said. I reached down, no control column on the airplane. I got it in the dark. The control column uh, comes out of its um, stowage and goes into a, a little frame on the left-hand side of the cockpit. And uh, that's where it had been for the whole dual flight. So I wasn't in much of a situation to take over. So uh, um, I said, I have control. Realized there was no pole there and said, no, change of mind. You, you have control. <laughs> so when he landed, I sent him solo because I figured he'd done pretty well at that stage of the game without killing me. Not much more to say, really. Uh, you probably heard the, the airplane has a great potential to ground loop if you get it all wrong. Um, they say there are only two sorts of Harvard pilots, those who have done a ground loop and those who are going to. I'm waiting for mine. When I came away from... Uh... Oh, next one. Oh, that's fine. 
Um, when I came away from instructing at Wigram, I guess I'd had enough, and I said to my wife, I don't care if I don't ever put my ass into one of those things again. She always reminds me of that, but here I am still doing it at this stage of the game. That's 92 as it was when I first flew it in the Air Force. Give us the next picture, Dave. And then a team of guys bought it. It was the first Warbird airplane and it got painted up in those camouflage colours, WAR. That's 92. Give us the next one. And that's its current colour scheme. So it's been changed quite a bit over time. Lovely airplane. See if there's any more pictures. Ah, okay. All right, so that's all I'm going to tell you about the Harvard and my experiences of it. By and large, it's been a lot of fun. Um, uh, it's the airplane I'm most familiar with these days, and it's the one I feel happiest getting in and out of. Um, but once upon a time, I was very happy getting in and out of an airplane like that. So our latest Warbirds, NZ Warbirds project is a Canberra. Now this will be for ground display only. We're never going to fly it again. For a start we don't have any engines, so it would be hard to fly. And at this stage we don't have the wings. The wings are down in Christchurch. But we've got the fuselage here now. That airplane is um, ex-Royal Air Force. It's a B-8 Canberra, and the Canberras that we had out here that flew at Ahakia and flew in Singapore, Borneo, Malaysia were BI-12s, basically the same airplane as that, but the fit of the airplane inside was different. Uh, different radios, different navigation gear. Um, it had an autopilot, our one. Uh, it was more, better equipped for going long distance from here to Singapore, say, where we did most, you know, a lot of our operation. So we've got the fuselage here and the work has started. The fuselage is in pretty good condition. Can give us another picture? And another one. That was it arriving there. Uh, it arrived here... Uh, Oh, a couple of months ago, and that's just coming off the truck. Um, and after it arrived, we lowered it to the ground, and uh, you can click it again, please, Dave. And that's where it is now, in number four hangar, our number four hangar, which is over there. And I hope you all get to see it at some stage. Um, we've done quite a lot of cleaning up work on the fuselage. Uh, the fuselage was inside for at, at the Air Force Museum in Christchurch uh, in a back shed. It's been inside there for over 25 years, waiting for something to be done to it. Nothing did get done, so then we heard they were going to get rid of it, so we thought this is a good project for us to get involved in. The wings, unfortunately, have been outside for all of those 25 plus years, so they're a bigger problem for us, but we will get them up here at some stage. 
anyway, uh, it's all of the money spent for transporting this aeroplane, transporting the wings, um, has been from donations from enthusiasts. We have uh, we've had over 50 people who've got enthusiastic and have been donating to the cause. And we're always looking for volunteers to help us clean and paint and all that sort of thing. So if you have any enthusiasm for anything like that, please let Warbirds know. And somewhere along the line, as we move on, we'll, uh, we'll be calling upon you. So we'll be looking for support in the future. But that's the project. And that's the thing that sort of keeps me off the streets mostly these days. That's really all I've got to say. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.